listening to the Raising Humans Kind podcast with Ashley, where we dive into the big topics, the stuff that really matters in raising your small humans, so that together we can raise humankind. In this series, I will answer the question, why should we stay away from rewards and consequences? And what do we do instead? Each week, I will add a new piece to the puzzle, so when we're complete, you will have your map, and you will be ready to ditch the rewards and consequences too. So settle in, grab a cuppa and join me as I chat with some of my favourite parenting leaders to answer this big question so that you can find your own unique pathway in raising your small human kindly. Dr Tamara Souls is a child psychologist and founder of the Secure Child Centre for Families and Children. She is also a mum to eight-year-old twins. Today we dive into emotional regulation. If we are going to let go of the old paradigm of rewards and consequences, we have to begin to understand that emotion drives behaviour. And therefore, emotional regulation is key in supporting your child and gaining cooperation. Tamara and I share examples and stories about bedtime and transitions. And Tamara shares a beautiful story at the end of the episode where she helps her family use connection and co-regulation to address aggression. So grab your coffee or your cuppa, let your kids know it's time for you, and let's dive in. Thanks for joining us, Tamara. I'm so glad that you're here to share all of your wisdom around emotional regulation. I know it's a topic that we'll have a lot to share on together. But before we dive into that, are you able to share a little bit about who you are, your story and some of the work that you do in this world? I would love to. And thank you for having me. I love all of the work that you put out there. And I feel very honored to have this chat with you. So I am a child psychologist and parent coach and most importantly to me, the mom of eight-year-old twins. And I run a clinic called the Secure Child Center for Families and Children in Montreal, Canada. And our focus is really an attachment-based focus and helping kids, teens, and families with a wide range of problems and challenges. And um, so I view my role in bringing that brain-based lens to a problem and helping parents mm. shift their approach to to discipline and to parenting and it's a it's a job that I love and so I focus primarily on the parent coaching piece so that's a little bit about me oh, and I'm sure people from hearing that introduction can see why we resonate with each other's work so much <laughs> there's a lot of alignment there yes. so before we dive into emotional regulation as one of the tools to a more holistic approach to discipline. Can you tell me why you don't use rewards and consequences in your work or with your own children? Yeah, you know, when I was doing my graduate studies, I think I was educated in child psychology in a very traditional mm. manner and from a very behavioral perspective. I think that was really the the force of the of the um, educational approach at that time. But when I started my postdoctoral um, internship or my postdoctoral fellowship, I did it at a time, it was in 2004, 2005, around there. And I did it at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. And it was at a time, particularly in California at that time, that ideas about interpersonal neurobiology and mm. Dan Siegel's work were just starting mm. to come out. And I did a focus on infant mental health and in learning more about the brain and how the brain wires and this interpersonal neurobiology, meaning how relationship and attachment 
informs brain development and an attachment and what comes for for a child who has a secure attachment, I was just blown away. And it really hadn't been a huge part of my training. That wasn't really a focus of the training, that relationship piece. And so even before I had my own children or before I had my own practice, I was just so awestruck by this infant mental health world and understanding the power of relationship. And so as that grew and as my experiences grew, and I worked with families from this lens, not just in infant mental health, but in early childhood mental health and then beyond, I saw the power of shifting that lens to a relationship-based one and to an attachment-based mm-hmm. one and to being able to view a problem from the lens of problem solving, not just superficial behavior. Mm. So as a result, right from that level of training, you know, the rewards and consequences were kind of out the window from the get-go, <laughs> which really was a gift to me as a clinician, but also to me as a parent, mm. because I feel like I came into parenting, obviously with my own challenges and my own baggage, but at least armed with this tool set that I had going in. So I felt very privileged to have that information. So really, it came from that postdoctoral fellowship experience where my view of infant and early childhood mental health was vastly expanded. Beautiful. I do feel like neuroscience is going to bring us back home. I feel like it's going to be the thing because people, you know, they want science to back up this type of stuff. And so now we're moving away from this behaviorist approach and all of the neuroscience that comes out is so um, supportive of this approach that you and I use. And I just feel like it's going to make this more mainstream and I'm very excited by it. And it'll be slow. It always is. Research takes a really long time to trickle down. We know that it can be like 10 or 15 years after things have really shown in the research before they actually become mainstream and um but i i do have a lot of hope that this is going to shift the way our culture parents maybe naive but i'm (laughs) I'm hopeful i agree (laughs) yes i think there is a shift happening i can speak even to my return to montreal which was in 2010 and when i returned at that time i noticed that how i was marketing and how my website was positioned around attachment really garnered a lot of attention because Mm. it wasn't really mainstream at that time. Mm. And now I see that we get parents calling who are like, I read, you know, this book or that book. And they're they're already starting to be steeped in that language. And it's so lovely to see. It is, isn't it? It is. Okay. So we know we're emotional beings and this is why emotional regulation is key. Can you tell me about how emotion plays such a huge role in challenging behavior? Yeah. I mean, emotions are the driver of challenging behavior. I think so often we get caught up in looking at, as I said before, the surface of behavior. And I think many of us, either as parents or clinicians, are often trained to analyze behavior, but really analyze it from this antecedent and consequence Mm. model, meaning what Mm. happened just before and what happens after, not why, why Mm. is this happening? And that's where we need to go. That's where the meat is, right? That's where the richness is. And so when we can understand that all behavior is communication, and we start to view ourselves as interpreting that communication, then we're going to be effective and then we're Mm. going to meet our child where they're at and get at the heart of what's going on. So the emotion that's driving it. So 
part of the challenge for so many people is on the surface, a behavior can look like aggression, let's say, mm -hmm. but it can be caused from myriad different mm -hmm. feelings. It could mm -hmm. be jealousy, it could be insecurity, it could be, you know, it, attachment-seeking, connection-seeking, all kinds of reasons. But if we just simply view this behavior as an inappropriate behavior that requires a consequence, we're going to inevitably keep seeing it and see more of it and not solve the real problem. So emotions really are the driver of these behaviors, and they are the clues that we, that we need to be able to decipher what's going on with our children. Yes. And I love that you said that because it is, if we, you know, have a consequence or a reward, it might squash it or, or increase that version of the, of what's going on, but it's the core issue is still there, right? That's so exactly. we haven't actually solved the problem. So it, for example, if we're going to put a consequence on top of aggression, then it's just going to pop up somewhere else. Maybe yes. that child won't hit in that specific situation for now, but whatever was driving that aggression is just going to pop up in another area of life. And so 100%. we'll be forever trying to just bop, on, it, bop it on its head, but not actually dealing with the cause, which you said can be things like fear or attachment seeking or a, a whole host of different <laughs> things. That's and that, and that, that can be challenging with this approach, can't it? You know, to Absolutely. try and feel like we need to look within. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Because otherwise, as you say, it's a bit of behavior whack-a-mole where it's yeah. just going <laughs> to keep coming up. But I often call it trading, you know, short-term gain for long-term mm. pain mm. because really that's what happens when we focus on that surface. But mm. as you say, it is hard work because we do have to be regulated ourselves, which mm. is a whole other part of the conversation, <laughs> but we have to be regulated ourselves in order to do that detective work and in order to be able to say, okay, I need to be in a position where I can decipher this behavior and, and start to understand our children from a different perspective that is new for a lot of, a lot of families. That's it, isn't it? Because most of us have been, whether you and I have been trained as psychologists with this behaviorist me message, even if that's not the case, there's been a lot of conditioning around that. So it really is going through a process of saying, you know, my child isn't necessarily doing this on purpose. They're not trying to, um, you know, annoy me right now. There's something going on for them. And that kind of shift in thinking can be big for people. It can be hard oh, yes. to be able to uh, step away from that that insidious kind of behaviorist approach that we all without realizing we have in our minds. Yes, yes. And even just how powerful it can be, even before we get to the step of the deciphering, even just shifting the narrative around how we explain our child's behavior, just as you did mm -hmm. perfectly by by saying, okay, this is not intentional behavior, mm, right? Mm. And shifting that language around my child knows how to push my buttons, right? Mm, that that mm. classic line <laughs> and being able to kind of look at that, turn it on its head and look at it very differently and not look at children as manipulative beings or, you know, violent or aggressive. And that language that we use around their behavior whether it's a simple shift from attention seeking to connection seeking right mm. those those mm. simple shifts are very powerful um, linguistic tools that we can we can use too even before getting to that deciphering stage absolutely so let's dive into an example so one of the challenges that i often hear parents have is around bedtime right so 
their children. Now, we won't talk about infants, for example, but, you know, toddlers, preschoolers above, they might be bouncing around and parents can have that lens of, you know, they just won't go to bed or how do I get them into bed? And if we're not looking at this emotional regulation piece, then we're missing such a core element of why some children can't come to rest because sometimes it is just that they have really big feelings in their body. And when a child has big feelings in their body, it's hard to lie down, feel it like emotion is energy. So that is going to take over their behavior. So can you talk about some of the things you would talk with families around to help a child come to rest in the evening if they've got big feelings? What kind of things are important to look at and, and work through? I love that question because it's not the typical kind of question around children and bedtime. So I love the way that (laughs) that question is framed. I often actually start with a discussion around how parents generally willingly accept the role of a co-regulator when they're Mm. parenting an infant, meaning that we accept that we're going to pick Mm. them up, we're going to rock them, we're going to do things to help them regulate as infants. But something seems to happen as soon as they can walk and talk (laughs) that we expect that now our job is done when it comes to co-regulating. Good, they Mm. got it. They can move independently. Mm. They can locomote Mm. so they can emote well. Yes. (laughs) And it doesn't quite work that way. And so I start from that lens to say, they, just because their motor milestones or their language milestones are advancing doesn't mean that their capacity to regulate is you know, at the same pace. And so I try to help them understand if your child has these big feelings, and as you said, emotion is energy, that's beautiful. How do you then help them with that energy mm-hmm. and, and settle mm-hmm. that energy? So it might be for some families, I like to use a lot of rough housing, rough and tumble mm-hmm. play that happens sort of strategically, not right before bedtime, but in that in that sort of wrapping up the evening phase. And a lot of great rough and tumble play, especially with their attachment figure and its physical touch and it's silly, and it really just promotes that regulation so beautifully. Uh, so that's one tool I use. And then- And I'll just course- dive in there as well. It also adds to, it connects as well. So it works on that beautiful. So as you're about to have that big, long separation, which can be really hard for children, you know, bedtime is a separation that, that it helps move the emotion and it helps connect. So roughhousing is definitely something we use in our house as well. There's a lot of chasing. It's loud. Often the grandparents are going, what are you doing? This is not (laughs) the approach that we used. Why isn't everybody quiet? And, (laughs) you know, no, we're loud, we're running, we're chasing, we're wrestling um, because we have to shift that energy before we expect a child to to come to rest. That's right. Exactly. So the roughhousing is one piece. And then, Mm. but I would say connection is at the heart of all of them, right? Mm. So uh, assuming also that our child has gotten enough movement during the day as well, because that's often a piece Mm. that's missing. But in addition to that, and and having the roughhousing, then we look at the sleepscape and how do we set that up in such a way that it is connection promoting and recognizing that even for toddlers, preschoolers and up, that's still a very long time without the safety of their caregiver. And so we really want to fill that cup as much as possible, right? So that, that idea of how do we 
how do we set up a routine, not necessarily a schedule, but a routine that is predictable, that contains ritual. Mm. Um, you know, with my children, we've had a ritual since I since birth, I suppose. I can't remember when it started, but I say the same thing to them every night. Mm-hmm. And my daughter had asked me recently, when did you start saying that? And I said, <laughs> I don't ever remember not saying it to you. Mm. You know, it's ritual is so powerful because again, it becomes predictable and Mm -hmm. that predictability is helpful. So whatever connection activity works for a family, so whether it's reading together, um, and even though my kids can read on their own, we read together. Mm -hmm. So we haven't dropped that just because they're old enough to read on their own for us as a family we still preserve that ritual. Yes, they could, in theory, just read alone in their book and then turn off their light and go to sleep, but that's not how Mm. bedtime works for our family, right? We want that connection time. And so whatever works for a family, whether it is, you know, talking about the day, reflecting on the day, I use a lot of guided meditation with with kids and Mm. families that they can do together um, so that everyone is trying to be in a place of calm and connection because yes. I think one of the one of the big challenges for so many families is one of a lack of integration during their day such that they save everything that they need to do for themselves until after bedtime mm-hmm. and what inevitably happens is parents anxiety rises when a child isn't falling asleep quickly because they have you know, 20 million things to, to get done after. Mm. And so even though this is not directly related to bedtime routine, one of the things that I do help parents with is how do we integrate some of those things into your day so that when you're doing bedtime, you can be fully present yeah. with your child. And that presence, you know, that mental presence, that emotional presence is so key if we're trying to fill them up before, before bedtime. So mm. those are some of the activities that, that we use. I tend to use a lot of deep breathing. I tend to try to help kids learn to kind of pair the feeling of starting to drift off to sleep with having one hand on their chest and one hand on their belly and taking some deep breaths so that even during the day when their emotions are running high or they're feeling a bit intense, that that association of putting their hand on their chest and their and their belly and taking a deep breath is associated with that calm of sleep and can bring that on. So I tend to use that at bedtime as well. But really it's this notion of understanding that kids still really want that connection at bedtime. They need that co-regulation, whether it's through story, whether it's through song, whether it's through reflection or breathing, they need that calm connection to help settle their bodies. Um, into a into a restful sleep Mm, I love all those examples that you've given and with my son we have a little uh, ritual of I tell him about a kangaroo and everything that the kangaroo (laughs) has done through the day and then what the kangaroo is going to do tomorrow and if it's interesting the rituals that you start like you experiment and then the ones that they ask for are the ones that they've really connected to we haven't talked about the kangaroo and I'm oh yes like they'll never let you forget (laughs) if it's a ritual that's that that really speaks to them that's Um, so true and you mentioned one thing that I think um, is also important just to add and it's something that I do as well when you said what the kangaroo is going to do tomorrow Mm, I mm. love to leave them with an anchor point Mm. and what I mean by that is I will coach parents or even with my own kids to leave them with 
a thought or an idea of reconnection yes. the next day. So I might say, I can't wait to cuddle with you in the morning when we wake up, or I can't wait to have mm. pancakes tomorrow morning. Mm. I can give them something to anchor that thought for the reconnection time. Yes, I love that. And it's Dr. Gordon Newfeld, isn't it, that says bridge the separation. That's so exactly go right. Over yes. the separation and bridge it with the connection. So where exactly. will we meet again? What will happen? What's on my mind is that I will see you next doing, like you said, pancakes for breakfast or um and that's such a beautiful little ritual for children to have. And so this is a great example of how, you know, we could say you stay in your bed or you won't get the iPad tomorrow or, right. you know, you won't get to go to your friend's birthday party unless you stay in your bed for the whole week. Or you can, you can if I just use that as a contrast to, you know, co-regulation, to being able to roughhouse beforehand and noticing the energy that needs to move, to being able to bring in more ritual, to recognising that this is a big separation, like the, the approach needs to be so much more holistic than mm-hmm. do this or this will happen. Because if we are really going to meet that need and have a lasting effect, which like you you mentioned earlier, this is a long-term approach. So we want children to have a good relationship with their bedtime. We want them to have positive body memories of what it was like to lie down and go to sleep when they're children, not associated with fear or dread. And if yes. we add in a consequence or threaten, because often rewards end up being consequences anyway, right? We dangle the <laughs> carrot and then we say, if you don't do this, I'm going to take that away. So it ends up being a consequence mostly. Um, And that doesn't necessarily give them those uh, relaxing and positive memories that we want to associate with being able to go to sleep. Yes. No, that's exactly it. I love the way that you said the, the body memories. And it's something that even I, in my sort of in the earlier years when my children were toddlers and they slept on a mattress on the floor and I have twins and so they they slept together and I would be in the middle of them. And for my daughter, she was very restless and she it took her a while to fall asleep and I had to really actively work on being present so that my agitation you know, wouldn't that I wouldn't be feeling agitated and then that translating to her mm, experience mm, as well. Mm. Just as you said, you want that to have that calm presence and that association with sleep. Yes, absolutely. I just want to interrupt this conversation for a moment to say if you're loving today's episode and want to dive into these topics and more with me, my membership, the Raising Humans Collective, is the place to be. For just 33 Australian dollars per month, you can access my workshops, a private forum where I will answer all your questions and dive into all your scenarios and wonderings with you, and also live webinars. This is the place for me to support you to integrate your learnings while tapping back into your own intuition and your own unique pathway. And so the next example I wanted to dive into, which parents often struggle with, with toddlers and preschoolers is around transitions. So why is emotional regulation something that we should be considering when, or if we're having um, a challenge, getting a child to move from one thing to the next? There's a few elements to this. And certainly there are some children for whom transitions are less challenging but for many it's a significant challenge for them and and it's it's a struggle for them one of the things that I think happens is that parents often forget to take the child's perspective (laughs) and to think about 
how little control a young child has in their day-to-day life. Mm. And what would happen if my husband came in while I was working on writing, you know, an article and he said, okay, it's, you, you have to come and cook dinner now. Right now. <laughs> that, that wouldn't go well no. <laughs> in my house. <laughs> and, you know, do that 10 times throughout the yes. day. That's it, isn't right? it? It's not just once. It's, it's all day. It's not just once. Mm. It's all day. And so we have to think about the fact that from their perspective, constantly being shifted from one thing to another. And shifting does take a lot of cognitive energy. It takes mm-hmm. a lot of brain power to shift from something. That is that is something that takes energy. Mm-hmm. And so to keep shifting, especially when it's not um, self-driven, that shift, and it's not driven by your own attention or driven by your own interest, mm-hmm. is going to be even more taxing for kids. So first, helping parents understand from that perspective that this is going to be emotionally evocative for most Mm. kids. They're going to have to stop something that they weren't ready to stop. They're going to have to um, use a cognitive skill that is fragile still. For example, if they're coloring something, being able to know that it can be there for me tomorrow Mm. when I return to it. Again, these are skills that are really fragile for, Mm. for young kids. And it's easy for us as an adult to say, just put it away for now. You can you can finish it tomorrow, right? But that's it's not as simple as that for, mm-hmm. for a kid. So these transitions are emotionally evocative for so many reasons. And they really do need to have that transition warning, that gentle guidance, and as much as possible have more control over those to minimize the transitions and have you know only the ones that are necessary. But of course, there are still some necessary ones. So having the support of a parent be able to insert some level of control. So maybe they have five minutes left, but they can choose. Do they want to finish coloring this part or this part? Or, you know, inserting some level of agency, you know, some ability for them to choose some element of this transition on their own Um, and to do it supported. Because I think for a lot of families, that's another challenge is that we expect kids to stop doing something because we've barked it from across the room. And again, they don't have the impulse control yet or the, you know, the executive functioning, those higher order thinking skills to be able to you know, resist their own desire to continue doing what they're doing and come to the person who's yelling at me from another room. Mm-hmm. That's that's not going to happen. So <laughs> they need that, that support of somebody coming in gently, maybe putting their hand on your shoulder if your child likes touch and, you know, helping them manage the feelings and allowing space for those feelings. Mm-hmm. So when they're frustrated about having to stop, that it's okay that they're frustrated about stopping. You know, mm. we don't have to get them to come and like it. <laughs> <laughs> and that that's such an important part about allowing these emotions is the emotions are not there to be squashed out. Like this yeah. is part of the emotional regulation work is for them to be able to feel the intensity of their emotions and know that we're okay with them. Because yeah. when we can sit there and say that we're okay with them, then they get the message that says, oh, these shouldn't be feared. These aren't some big, scary thing that's bigger than me because my mom's sitting here and, and she's calm. She's okay. And that's, that's that co-regulation piece that's, that is really important. Why do you think exactly people right. get um, caught up on, or parents get caught up on, they have to come and they have to like it? Like, what do you think? Yeah, talk to me about that. I think it's a 
misunderstanding of the role of parenting. Mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'll put it I'll put it simply. I think that many parents have been socialized to believe that our children are good children when they listen. Mm, yes. What we mean by listen as a culture generally is obey. Okay, yes. And so when our child doesn't come when they are called <laughs> i'm like emphasizing these words because it's almost like we're you know treating an animal or uh, a, yes a pet, <laughs> right and so when they don't come when they're called then they're not obeying and so mm. that triggers in parents i'm not a good parent they're mm. not a good child i am they're disrespecting me mm. the hierarchy in this family is off right i have yes. no power i have no control I'm doing something wrong yes I'm doing something wrong so it triggers all of these thoughts in the split second of everything that we are generally cultured to believe about parenting. Mm. And so all these stories that we have in our in our brains about parenting get triggered. And I'll say that, I mean, despite the fact that that's not what I believe, obviously, about parenting at all, certainly every once in a while, it, it'll seep in and I have to actively notice that it's that it's seeped in and you know talk myself through it because it's so ingrained culturally it may be ingrained in how we were parented but certainly it's you know an entire society of how how parenting is viewed certainly in you know in western society certainly that's often how parenting is viewed so parents get triggered by what is seen as oppositional behavior mm. when a child is having feelings <laughs> yes that's a beautiful reframe there oppositional behavior versus having feelings like we do tend to make it so much about us don't we they're trying yes. to go against what I'm saying they're not listening to me it's often not about us it's about yes. them in that moment and yes. their big feelings and they're having a hard time that's it exactly it's one of the questions that I often ask parents to reflect on is why why do you feel like it's about you? Like, what, what is it that's <laughs> happening question. that that is making you feel like that's a challenge to you or that, that it's about you as opposed to just them having feelings? Mm. And it's a hard one to answer because I think for most of us, there isn't a clear answer. It's just this sort of visceral thing that, that happens. But when we start to unpack it and we can start intentionally moving away from that notion that my child's feelings and behavior are not a report card mm. on me and my parenting, mm. then I can show up in a very different way. Yes. Yes. And it's such an important thing to be able to detach from is that story that says my child has big emotions and that is a reflection of my parenting. It's not how they show up. It's how we show up with them. That's yes. a reflection. It's how can we yes. stand in that moment? That's what we want to be looking within and, and noticing for that day. Okay, how did I show up? Not whether my child got angry, frustrated, sad, upset, but how did I show up in that moment? That's right. That's exactly right. Now, people are often believe that consequences and rewards are necessary for children in order for them to mature emotionally. So we hear parents say a lot, well, how will they ever learn? Can you break down for us without rewards and consequences, how do children learn to become emotionally mature and emotionally regulated people? So I think to start, it's about how we model for them, but not just modeling, because modeling is important 100%. But 
modeling is me, you know, maybe taking a cold drink of water and taking some deep breaths when I'm frustrated. So that's one piece of it of how we can show what emotion regulation looks like and help them to develop those skills. But it's doing that also in connection in the co-regulation piece that's important. So again, talking about it is is one thing. It's the least useful probably of all the <laughs> approaches that one could take. But modeling, I would say, is is the next <laughs> you know, next one if we're going in reverse order of the most important. But really it's as you said, how you show up for them. So if I can sit with my child who's melting down and still hold boundaries, because I think, mm. you know, mm. when you say that question about how you reframe a parent's question in that way, and I think you, you've hit the nail on the head, the question often manifests as, well, does that mean my child can just do anything yes. they like because there's yes. no rewards and consequences? No. But as you say, <laughs> what's embedded in that question is, how, how will I raise a responsible, mm. respectful mm -hmm. adult without what I know to be a framework of, of yes. parenting. And so the way that we do that is that we show up to them and show that emotions can be tolerated, but still hold boundaries around certain things. So mm. we can intervene when a child hits and we can not just dive in and say, no hitting, hitting's not okay. What we can do is go to, oh, you were frustrated because he took your toy, mm -hmm. right? We don't go into a giant monologue because that's not useful <laughs> either. <laughs> but we can very simply acknowledge what we think is happening. We can mm -hmm. try to name that feeling. And when we do that, we can help their brains integrate, right? So mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to help that emotion side, that feeling side, and connect with the language side, for instance, if we want to think about it from left-right sides, we want to integrate that. So we might give language to it. Again, very simply and very short, but we might just give language. You're frustrated or you're sad, whatever it might be, but just giving some, some emotional language to it. And then showing up by being present with them, even if they're not going to take deep breaths because you're suggesting that they take deep breaths. You can sit with them. You can rub their backs if they're tolerating that, for instance. You can offer them a glass of water. You can ask if they want to go for a walk with you. You can engage them in these regulation strategies without telling them what to do. Because mm -hmm. I think often as parents, even when they start to embrace some of these strategies, they still just dole them out as another yes sort of thing to dole out and most of the time our children don't <laughs> take the baton when we try to pass them <laughs> that one <laughs> but when we do it together when we do it with mm. them they're much more likely to do it and mm. even if it just means sitting you know on their bed while they are frustrated melting down and we're just maintaining our composure and mm you know, it's cliche, but it's effective being that lighthouse in their storm, right? We mm. want them to see us as that safe harbor. And we know, we know, coming back to research and science, we know that being that safe harbor that a child can return to unconditionally completely changes how they can move through the world. 
And so that's how we build that emotion regulation. We build it through connection and through relationship. And when we do that relatively consistently, none of us can do it all the time, but when we do that relatively consistently, that's when those emotion regulation skills start to develop. They develop in concert with our attachment figure and with our, with our caregivers. Mm, that's such a beautiful answer, Tamara. And I love that you said that when we can show up unconditionally, it changes the way they move through the world. That's so beautiful. And I do want to reiterate that, as you said earlier, what you were saying there is showing up unconditionally for them, but it doesn't mean that you don't have boundaries. Yeah. Showing up unconditionally doesn't mean we let our children hit people. Right. That's not what this is about. Um, and I think one of the frames phrases that I often say to parents is about, you know, not that you're saying this, because I love, again, that you've said short language. I think sometimes parents get in this idea of I want to mention everything. I want to mention yes. what, you're na- what you're feeling. I want to mention that it's okay and just say, say less. Like it's, yeah. it, you know, we don't want too much language in the brain. We don't actually want to bring them out of their feeling body into their language brain too much. It's okay for yeah. them to feel this. But I often say that it's about two yeses and a no. So yes, you can feel this. Yes, it needs to come out, but no, it can't necessarily be like that. And not yes. that that's the language, but that's just the the idea in your mind the as message. a parent. Yes, yes. exactly. It's the say less and be more. Yes, I, is, I love is that. Is the way of putting I love it. That. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I think that that's a perfect segue into our last question, which is how have you used in your family or in your work emotional regulation as the key element in dealing with a challenging behavior? So there's so many examples. <laughs> there's, a, there's a few that come to mind. I can, I can mention some personal and some, some clinical. You know, on a personal level, one of my children in particular is very proprioception seeking, meaning that mm-hmm. for her sensory processing, so how she moves through the world and takes in information through her senses, she really needs a lot of physical touch and deep pressure to be able to move smoothly through the world, both emotionally and behaviorally. And so for her, if I notice that she is sort of agitated, not necessarily angry, but just physically agitated, she is more likely to end up doing something that's going Mm -hmm. to create a problem, you know, between her and her brother, or she's going to be snippy back at me or, you know, something like that. And so what I might try to do in that moment is be like, do you want a wheelbarrow? You know, and I'll, I'll pick up her feet and wheelbarrow her around the house. And it shifts the energy, you know, really quickly. Or, you know, just in general with my kids, when things are getting a little squirrely, it's outside. Like, let's just go yeah. outside, right? That's <laughs> sort of the quick, it's either the just add water or go outside <laughs> kind of combination to help regulate and it's that getting out in nature getting that fresh air moving our bodies Mm -hmm. and doing that in connection again is it just shifts everything Mm -hmm. and so that's something that i definitely do at home a lot in session you know one of the examples that came to my mind when you asked that question is i remember a session where a child was having a very very intense response to something i don't even remember what it was but this child got very physical and started to hit his parent. And in that moment, as many parents do when, when hitting starts, is we shift immediately into, don't hit me, you can't hit. And we, mm. we shift into that 
sort of power and control mode and we meet that power with power mm. and it was escalating quickly to a point where I needed to separate both of them temporarily and be able to reframe things and get mom to be able to come to him and say can I offer you a hug instead mm. and you know, this mom was very incredulous at the time <laughs> and thought, my kid is trying to kick me and you're telling me the to offer him a hug. Like, yes, we won't see you next time. Um, but, you know, it, what happened is what I was hoping would happen. And you never know. But, you know, he initially balked and kind of resisted. But I noticed his physical movement was still moving toward mom and so even though he was like no I don't want to hug I could see his body moving and shifting toward her yeah. and so I encouraged her to continue and lean in and what she was able to do is when she enveloped him he was able to do that thing that we want kids to do when they are in that aggressive mode which was to shift from anger to tears yeah. and he melted oh. in her arms and it was and I melted in tears I bet <laughs> You know, and oh. that's just that's just an example that I could think of off the top of my head of where we met this dis this discipline challenge, if you mm. want to frame it that way, with connection mm. instead of correction. Now we of course processed what happened, but as as someone trying to help this family in that moment, it's important for them to know that the only goal in that moment is just calming that nervous system down, yes. Yes. right? That's that's the only goal. It has nothing to do with the argument or the whatever mm -hmm. the trigger was. That's irrelevant in that moment. And that mm -hmm. can be revisited. Mm -hmm. It's not that we just sweep these things under the rug and don't mm -hmm. talk about them. But in that moment, we needed to use connection to calm that nervous mm. system, to reconnect, and then, then we can explore what happened yes. and what those triggers are yes. when we're back in that calm, safe space. Yes, because then that child's brain's more receptive to any lessons that may or may not be needed to be discussed. Because exactly in that right. emotionally charged state, that child's not able to integrate anything that you're trying to teach or you would prefer him to do. And I That's love right. that you said that he was able to move to mad to sad. Because that is, that's the goal, right? That is, yes. we want the brain to be able to go, okay, what's under this anger and frustration is actually fear or sadness or something more vulnerable. And when I can find my tears about that, that I can't change, then I can accept. And then I, the brain can go into more of a, um, it can adapt. And that's then right. we can move on to, like you said, teaching or, or talking about the problem if it feels appropriate. That's such a beautiful exactly. example. I definitely would have cried if I was in that yes. <laughs> witnessing. Oh, that. I did. <laughs> and so I think all the examples you've given have been exactly what I was going to touch on. So in the end of each of these um, discussions, I just bring it back to an example around sibling aggression around a toddler or preschooler being a little bit too rough with a baby, because I think that's one of the common, most common oh, questions yes. I get of, well, if I don't use consequences, how do I stop the toddler hurting the baby? And so if we're bringing the emotional regulation piece in, I do with my kids exactly what you were talking about. So I might notice the energy. So notice that he's, you know, a little bit tense or a little bit rough. And so then I have to compensate for his immaturity. It's not his job in that moment to be able to manage that big in 
emotion. He can't at his preschool age. So then it's my job as the leader to be able to come in and intervene and go, right, I think, just as you said, I think outside now. I'm going to fold the washing outside on the grass while you two play outside because you can see that this isn't going to work inside. Or sometimes I'll even cue my son into it. So I'll say, can you have, have you noticed your jaw? So one of the things I notice for him is if he's approaching his little brother and his jaws clenched, then he's got too much energy. His brother's got like, that's not going to be fun play for his little brother. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'll say, have you noticed your jaw? Can you see that? That means you've got a lot of energy. Come here, let's wrestle first or come here, let's jump on the swing. So we have an indoor swing because I've got two boys who have a lot of energy and that can be a real, if we can't be outside for whatever reason, that's a second best option um, is to be able to regulate the nervous systems through that movement while we're still inside. Um, And I love that you, sorry to interrupt you. mm -hmm. I love that you turn his attention to that because it would be one thing and still a good thing if as parents, we notice this and then take action. Mm -hmm. But how you build those regulation skills mm. is exactly what you're doing by turning their attention to something in their own body yes. and being able to then see what comes next and how to regulate that. That's it, because I want him to be able to tune into his body and feel the tension, and then I want him to be able to make a decision about what he does with that. I'm not expecting him to do that as a preschooler. That's my job, but I will slowly hand that over to him as he gets older and he's able to do that. And actually I noticed he was at a friend's house. He was quite young and he was being looked after by a friend of mine and she said that he came up to her and said, I need to go outside. And she said, oh, yeah, in a second, blah, blah, blah. And then she said, as soon as I turned around, he pushed another girl. And she said, I realised in that moment he'd recognised I'm not coping now. I need to be outside. But she said, I hadn't realized what he was trying to tell me. And so sometimes, and I'm not, again, I'm not expecting him as a toddler or a preschooler yeah. to be able to do that every time. But that's, they're the little snippets that we go, okay, they will get this when that prefrontal cortex develops a little bit more. And they can, exactly. you know, hold multiple things and they can, you know, feel all of that stuff that comes from more brain development. But we're doing this with not an expectation right? We're doing this with a long-term goal in mind. Exactly. And expectations are everything, as, as, as we know, when it comes to parenting, is having appropriate expectations that are not based mm. on what other children do yes. or don't do at a particular age or stage, but really knowing that if you're repeatedly butting heads against the same problem, it's possible that your expectations are, <laughs> are, are off and we need to adjust those mm, and, mm. and respond accordingly. And so expectations are everything. And as you said, being able to slowly empower them to do those things, but recognizing that I'm going to scaffold that skill yes, yes. by providing those options. Yes. And that what they can do one day, they may not be able to do the next day or what I know my son can do at 9am, he can't do at 5pm. And that's a really important thing to remember. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation, Tamara. It's been delightful to dive into this topic with you. And I really hope that parents can get a greater understanding of what this actually means to use this as a tool in the toolbox. And I really appreciate you coming on here and, and sharing this with us. Oh, thank you so much. This was a pleasure. It was a lovely conversation. I appreciate you having me on. So before we leave, where can people find more about you and your offerings and your courses and where can they get more of you? Yeah, the best place is my website, drtamarasouls.com. And on there I have my podcast and my courses. I have a 
course called No More Power Struggles. But I also have a few PDF handouts for, for families for free, including one that is for hidden reasons your child may be melting down. So if they're interested in that, they can head over to my website and, and check that out too. Beautiful. All right. Thank you so much, Tamara. Thank you. Well, that's another piece of our puzzle added. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I'd love if you could leave a review below or screenshot it and share your biggest takeaway and tag me at Raising Humans Kind on Instagram. This is one way to support the podcast and means it can reach more parents who need to hear this message. And if you want to integrate these teachings and work with me, the Raising Humans Collective is the place to be. An online community of like-minded parents working hard to pave their own path. That's the place for me to guide you along your own journey to answer all your questions and support you in raising yourself as you raise your own children. All of course, so together we can raise humankind. <laughs>